encourage you, go ahead and turn. See the army roll that just took place here? That's awesome. We don't have enough army rolls in the church, you know? Uh, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 21. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you have an outline, it's worthless. Uh, we kind of changed it this morning. So, yeah, Bill, you, you don't really have to do much back there. You can just leave it on the title page. Um, so kind of made that easy. So preaching in a large text like we're going to do, we're going to do 35 verses today, chapter 21, verse 5 through 38. Um, it can be hard. That can be challenging. And so I wanted to make sure that the main point was coming through as clear as could be. And so uh, this morning kind of reworked a lot of it. So hopefully it's going to become a little more clear. And therefore, the outline, you can still use it as headings to, if you take notes, but we're not going to just chronologically follow that outline little information, at Timberline, we do what we call expositional preaching, uh, which means we work our way uh, through books of the Bible, passage by passage, text by text, verse by verse. Uh, we do this because we want to understand the context of each book and how it uh, communicates the gospel. It also prevents us from only preaching on certain topics or avoiding certain topics. Uh, so when we go verse by verse, book by book, what that means is we're going to cover everything in the Word of God, the easy things, the good things, the happy things, the hard things, the difficult things. Um, and so today, we're going to jump into what might be considered somewhat of a difficult text. I say it's difficult because there are some difficult verses and exactly what do they mean. Jesus is going to be talking about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, which happens in AD 70, as well as his second return. Uh, now, for many Christians, and maybe even you, as we mentioned, okay, we're going to be talking about the second return, you immediately become excited, and you immediately begin thinking, great. Now we can get closer to pinpointing that date. We can create our chart. We can know exactly what's happening so that we know when Jesus is going to return. That's not what we're going to do because that's not what Jesus does. And nowhere in the Bible do we gain access to understanding the exact time in which Jesus is coming. So if you have a chart, it really is not going to make sense. Um, rather, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to show us that there is going to be a destruction upon Jerusalem and upon the temple um, because they have rejected Jesus. Jesus has been rejected, thus God has been rejected, thus there will be judgment upon Jerusalem and the temple. If you've been with us, we've gone through chapter 20, and in chapter 20, Jesus had many conversations with the religious leaders where it became very, very clear they did not want Jesus as their Messiah because they do not see a need for forgiveness of sins. Rather, what they see is that they want a Messiah who will bring them back to the great rule of King David a thousand years prior. That's what they want, and because that's what they want, they do not want Jesus. And therefore, what we're going to see is that judgment will fall upon Israel as they have rejected Israel as a foreshadowing of the judgment that will then come up in the future for all who ultimately reject Jesus as well. But Jesus doesn't want us just to understand, okay, there's a judgment and what's going to happen in the future. Primarily in this text, he's focused on what does it mean, though, to live? How do we live in light of the knowledge? How do the disciples, in, before AD 70, how do they live leading up to AD 70? How do we live as we move towards what we know is the return of Christ. And one thing we're going to see is that the application, the instructions that are given to uh, Israel, to the disciples before AD 70, is going to be the same application for us because the life that they lived then, living towards the time of judgment, Jerusalem, is a foreshadowing of the time we live in as we make our way to the return of Christ, which will then be judgment for all those who have rejected Jesus and salvation for all those who have believed in him. And so we have a big text. You're going to have questions. You can text them in. We'll see if we'll have time to answer them or, or some of them. So feel free to use the number that's at the bottom of your uh, bulletin, and we'll, we'll handle that when we get to it. Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and have you stand. We stand at the reading of the text. Now, there's a lot that we're going to read today. If you need to take some breaks, down and up, that's okay. If you need to sit down and just stay seated, that's okay. It's, this is not the endurance test. That will come later. 
chapter 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will, be, where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will the sign, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree. And all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves. Lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but, that, but at night he, would, he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Let's pray. Father, Father, this is a big text. There are clear things here. There are plain things here. And there are some difficult things here. Give us wisdom today. Give us wisdom to understand your word. Lord, we thank you that you are glorious, that you are holy, that you are mighty, that you are sovereign. That you know the end as well as you know the beginning, for you have ordained it all. Nothing is a surprise to you. And God, we thank you for how in your word you give us glimpses of the future. You help us to understand what is going to take place and how we are to live in light of this. Lord, I pray that we would not be distracted by what some would call sensational things. That we would not be distracted by the things that are left somewhat unclear. But God, may we, may we come to understanding and conviction on the things that are clear today. And the things that are not clear, God, may we hold them in humility and love, knowing that you will continue to give instruction and wisdom through your word and through your spirit. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So I said your outline, we're, we're just going to kind of jump around in the outline. The headings will still be helpful, 
uh, but we won't necessarily follow the sequence. When you're dealing with a large text like this, what I was doing was sequentially going through, uh, just through the whole text. But being that it's so large, I felt like a little bit of the, the main emphasis was being lost. And so this morning, then I reworked it. So hopefully it becomes a little more clear. Uh, so we'll start in verse 5, though. We'll look at the reason for the discourse. Why is this taking place? Why do we have this teaching here before us? If you look at verse 5, we read, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And so there's, there's people around Jesus, disciples and others, and they're looking at the temple. They're admiring the temple. Now, the temple was one of the um, wonders of the ancient world. Herod had begun to rebuild it in 19 BC, and it would be completed <clears throat> around 63 AD. So only a few years before it'd be destroyed, it was completed. And Herod had enlarged it almost twice its original size. It was now about 400 by 500 yards, and it was covered in gold. It was an amazing sight. And so you have people around Jesus, and they're looking at this temple. They're going, have you seen this temple? I mean, this thing is amazing. And they're looking at it, and at its wonder. And, and the rebuilding of the temple was their hope of the rebuilding of the nation of Israel, that it will be the rebuilding of the rule of King David, which hopefully the Messiah would bring back. But it's because... Israel had become distracted by looking at the temple, by looking at these things rather than understanding the purpose of them, that they were meant to point us to Jesus. They had thus rejected Jesus. They had rejected God. They no longer saw themselves as sinners needing a Savior. They wanted their position. They wanted their prosperity. They wanted uh, what they believed they deserved as God's people. And so now, Jesus turns and he says, As for these things, then you see, the days will come. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He says, the temple will be destroyed. Now, the amazing thing is, notice the disciples' response. When and what's the sign? Now, what would your response be? Are you sure? Like, wouldn't you wrestle with that? Like, look at the size of this thing. It's massive. And Jesus says, no, it's going to be completely and absolutely decimated. Now, the disciples have walked with Jesus. They've seen him raise people from the dead now. They've seen him walk on water. So when Jesus says this thing is going to be destroyed, they say, okay, um, what's the sign and when is this going to happen? They begin to grow in understanding who Jesus is. Because just prior to this text, if you remember, last week, David or Jesus makes it known, I am not only the son of David, meaning a man, but I am the very son of God. And he must not only be known as a man. If we're to properly understand the Messiah, he is the God-man. He's 100% God, 100% man. So he's now here standing before them, letting them know what the future will be because they have rejected Jesus. So what we're going to have is he's going to answer the question, what is the sign and when will this take place? But now more than that, that's what we're going to look at first, but more than that, and what he's most concerned about is how do we live now in light of this knowledge? That's why the main point, Jesus has told us the future so we know how, so we know how to now live in the present. That's the whole point. He's going to let them know, this is what's happening. Now, this is how we live. But let's first look. He's going to tell us what are not signs or non-signs. Not nonsense, but non-signs. And we see these in verses 8 through 11. Notice he says, see that you are not led astray. Why would we be led astray? Because there will be false messiahs who come and say, I am he. The time is at hand. He says, don't go after them. That's not me. We'll later see. Jesus says, when I come, it'll be obvious. I'll come in the clouds. Everyone will see when I come. And then he says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. Why? Why do I not need to be fearful, terrified of war, of tumults, of chaos, of anarchy? Well, because he says these things must take place, but the end is not at once. These are not the signs of the end. And then he goes on, verse 10, he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against, na kingdom against kingdom. Again, there will be war. And then we go, verse 11, there will be earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. And what we see, there will be natural disasters. In Mark chapter 13, verse 8, which Mark chapter 13, 
Matthew 24, you can write those down. Those are parallel passages, meaning those are passages that the other gospel writers have written that are similar teaching to what we have here. So Matthew 24, Mark 13, uh, largely covers the same material, slightly different emphasis in certain ways, a little bit different information at times. But in Mark chapter 13, verse 8, right after Jesus has talked about nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and all these natural disasters, Mark says these are just the beginning of birth pains. So these are not the end. And that's good for us to understand because oftentimes what we think, oh, there's war coming, is this the end? Well, what we're told here to the disciples as they're awaiting judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70 is that earthquakes, hurricanes, natural disasters, famines, wars, they will take place. And what we can do now as we look in history, we see that wars and famines and pestilences have characterized all of history. In fact, if you go to Revelation chapter 6 and you begin looking at the seven seals, the first few seals which characterize the age of the church are all describing wars and natural disasters that will occur. These things are the natural things that take place in a fallen world, which means when we hear of planes crashing into buildings like back in 9-11, when we hear of, of terrorists strapping bombs to their chest and going into places where they blow them up and hurting other people, when we see that hurricanes are ripping through cities, tsunamis are leveling uh, islands, and earthquakes like back in Haiti a few years ago have destroyed and crippled the nation. Rather than run to our charts and say, is this the end? The Bible is saying, no, these things take place in a fallen world. This is what takes place in a fallen, sinful world. When we go back to Genesis and we see that Adam and Eve became corrupted through sin, what we understand is that all of creation became corrupted. That's why our hope is not in just a new Israel. Our hope is not going back to King David. Our hope is the new heavens and new earth where we will one day reign with Jesus forever and there will be no sin there at all. And so that, that's what he says are the non-signs. So, so don't go running when we see these things happening. Now he says, and we're going to jump a little bit. We're going to jump over to verse 20. Now verse 20 is when he begins talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says what the sign is. He says, verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. What's the sign? This is interaction. What's the sign? Armies are going to be surrounding Jerusalem. You want to know what the sign is? The sign is there will be armies around. Well, what takes place then? Verse 21, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city leave the city. Do you see how, see how crazy that sounds? Cities have walls. Cities provide protection. We run to cities. Cities are our tower of refuge. And what better refuge than the city that has the temple of God? Right? That's the city we run to. But Jesus says, no, no. You run to this city, you will be destroyed. Because my judgment is coming upon this city. And that's what we read in verse 22. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So what we're going to have here is what has been written in the past in the Old Testament about Israel, if they continue to reject God, is now going to come to fruition god is going to pour out judgment upon this nation for the rejection of jesus and god which is a foreshadowing of the judgment that will come upon all who reject jesus at the end of the earth and so let me read just uh two passages you can write these down jeremiah chapter 18 verses 9 through 12 and there we read and if at any time, this is God speaking, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so this is, this is what Jeremiah is to go do. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. So he says, repent, 
repent. If you don't, judgment is coming. And then this is their response. But they say, that's in vain. We will follow our plans and will, and will every one act according to the stubbornness of his, evil heart, of his evil heart. So they say, no, no, we're not going to repent. No, no, we're not going to listen to you, Jeremiah. We can do the things that we want to do. And thus judgment is now coming. Jer- uh, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 6. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, the land of Israel, the land of Jerusalem, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. And those are some tough passages that we come across in the Old Testament. And they're all pointing, they're all, they were pleading with Israel, repent repent and they said no we will not repent we will live how we want to live and therefore now judgment is coming and we see in verse 24 they will fall by the edge of the sword be led captive among all nations now josephus records this josephus is a first century historian it's a bloodbath it is a bloodbath that takes place in jerusalem women are killed kids are killed they're eaten by their own mothers It is a bloodbath that takes place in this nation. uh, Titus, the general who comes, completely decimates Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and the whole idea of not one stone left on another is the whole imagery of it's completely and absolutely destroyed. And then we read, though, trampled underfoot by Gentiles. We get that. It'll be... It would come from an outside force. Gentiles just means not the people of God, uh, not Israel. And, and then it says, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, this is one of those passages. That, that's a hard verse. What does that mean? Until the times uh, of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what I take that to mean is, based upon Paul in Romans chapter 11, as he talks about that the time of the Gentiles is the time in between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus when the gospel goes out to all nations, to the Gentiles, that it would be preached and that more and more people from every nation would come and hear God and so would hear the gospel. And so Matthew 28 is the sending out into the nations, the sending out into the times of the Gentiles as we have that great commission where Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. And so the times of the Gentiles is the time in between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And I believe then that operates as our transition verse as we go into verse 25. Because in verse 25, what's going to happen? Now we're going to switch over and look at the return of Jesus. Um, In Mark 13 and Matthew 24, I think those texts make it a little bit more clear that Jesus is now switching and talking to about the return of, of, of himself at his second coming. But think of it kind of like at a, as a camera lens. And so Jesus is zooming in you know, with one of those big lenses. He's looking at the judgment that's going to fall on Jerusalem and on Israel at this moment. Now, when, when the disciples ask, when will this be? What, what will the sign be? Their mind, the destruction of Israel is the end of the world. Because that's the temple. That's where God has dwelt. So that's no more. The the city is destroyed. Surely we're now going into the very end of the world where Jesus is now returned. And so now he's going to zoom out. And often when we're in apocalyptic literature, literature that's looking forward to the future, events are somewhat grouped together. So you don't always see a time frame or a time span between them. It's like when you go, uh, I lived in California, we'd look at the Rocky Mountains, and from a distance, it looked like all the mountain peaks were right next to each other, but when you go stand on a mountain peak, you then realize, oh wow, it was like 20 miles to the next mountain peak, but from a distance, they look close to each other. That's what apocalyptic literature often does in the Bible. When it talks about the first coming and second coming of Jesus at times, It almost looks like they happen right next to each other. 
Because they're mountain peaks, and from a distance they look close. But as we enter into it, as we see it, we see that there's a distance there. But now what Jesus has done, he's zoomed in on the destruction of Israel. Now he's going to zoom out. So he's making a connection here. The destruction of Israel, the certainty of this judgment, is certainly connected to the certainty of the judgment that will then come at a second return upon all who have rejected Jesus. And also the salvation of all who have believed in him. So he's making a connection here. And what is really the focus here? He says, you'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It will be obvious. We won't have to wonder, did Jesus come? Did we miss it? Someone walked into the office. I don't remember who it was. It was kind of funny. They walked in the office the other day. Nobody was in there. Like, oh, I thought rapture happened. Trust me, you'll know when Jesus comes. We'll know when Jesus comes. Because when he comes, the whole earth will know. Because he's not coming in secret. He's coming in the clouds to gather all who have believed in him. And so what are we told to do? Look at verse 28. Now when these things take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near meaning the fullness of your salvation, meaning he's come to bring you into his presence, into the new heavens and new earth for all of eternity. So when will this take place? Well, let's skip down just a few verses. Look at verse 31. There we read, when you see these things take place, you know the kingdom of God is near. So we go back to this camera. I think he's zoomed in. He's looked at the destruction of Israel. He zoomed out, made the connection. that This is also connected to the return of Christ. And he's going to zoom back in just a little bit. And he's going to say, okay, when these things take place. Because remember, how did we start? We started in, in verse 6. As for these things that you see, the days will come, and there will not be left one stone upon another. Teacher, when will these things take place? When is this going to be destroyed? So now he's returning to specifically answer the question of the Jerusalem destruction. And he says in verse 32, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now there are many interpretations that take place here. There there are are some people who would say all all of Luke 21 only deals with AD 70. Everything about the chapter is only about uh, the destruction of the temple, and they can make a good case for it. And so under that, under that understanding, the Son of Man coming in the clouds would either be his ascension to Jesus, or ascension to the Father after the cross, or it would be the coming in clouds, the coming of destruction that happens in AD 70. That's how they would interpret that. When they would come to verse 33, and they would say, this generation... Uh, There are some who will say, well, that refers specifically to the generation that he's talking to. But there's other possibilities as well. The word generation can also mean race. And therefore, he could be saying, the uh, the Jewish people will remain a people until my return. So he could be saying that. He could be saying, uh, referring to, because often when you read this generation in Luke, it is referring to the wicked generation. And so he could be saying, look, There will be Jews who will reject me all the way until I return again. So that's another possibility. There are good arguments for these possibilities. Um, It could simply refer to all generations that exist in between the first coming and second coming. Oftentimes, time spans are kind of like we talked about the apocalyptic literature. Sometimes they look like mountain peaks next to each other. He could just simply be saying, between my first coming and second coming, I'm just referring that to one generation, and this generation will see this. That's another possibility. You see, these are some of the difficult things. You're kind of like, well, which one is it? That's a good question. There are really smart people who will give you all those different answers. I believe he actually is referring to the generation that is alive at that moment, listening to him. And just so you know, I've changed my position three times this week. (laughs) We need to be cautious with the things that are a little less clear. There are things that are clear. Judgment's coming. Jerusalem will be destroyed. Jesus is coming. Don't doubt that. There is certainty. How, exactly when, some of these other things, it's kind of difficult to understand. Now, the good news is the application will be the same regardless of what position we take. 
That's okay. Um, the reason I say that is because I do believe he's directly going back to the answer in verse 6. And he's saying, within the next 40 years, that's a generation, within the next 40 years, this temple will be destroyed. And I believe that history itself proves that. Because if this happens sometime around 33 AD, then 37 years later, when Titus comes and destroys, that's within a generation. That's within the 40 years. And so I believe that's exactly what he is saying. So you want to know what's the sign? There will be armies surrounded. You want to know when it's going to happen? Within a generation. That, I believe, is what he's saying here. Now then. It's kind of fun to look at these details, isn't it? And it'd be fun to go back through some of these passages that we did and look closer at them, gain more information, and, and kind of nitpick some of the words and find out various views on them. And that's fun, and there's a place for that. But we need to realize that this information is given for transformation. It's given to inform the church how they're to live. How do we live now? So this whole judgment, is he just telling us? Just so you know, just didn't know if you heard. Destruction's coming. Just, just wanted you to know that. It's not the point. He's not just giving us information so we don't do anything with it, but he's giving us information so we know how to live. And, that, and that's what we're going to go now and we're going to look at. And we're going to see two main things. The first one is we're to stand firm in persecution by the grace of God. Look at verse 12. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 19. He says, before all this, and he's specifically speaking to the disciples before AD 70, although the application would be to us who live up until the return of Jesus, because there's a foreshadowing. Verse 12, but to this they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for name's sake. And so uh, what we see is there's going to be persecution. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has alluded to persecution. Back in Luke 14, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you need to bear a cross. In chapter 12 of Luke, he said, uh, I have come not to bring peace, but to bring division. And mothers will be turned against daughters and daughters against mothers and sons against fathers. Remember that verse? That was a while ago. In John 15, 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Throughout the scriptures, Jesus says, look, if you follow me, there is a cost. Now, the reason is, is because when we believe in the gospel, we are forgiven, saved, adopted into God's family, and given a new citizenship, so that no longer are we necessarily citizens of this world, but now we're called aliens and strangers here. And according to 2 Corinthians 5, we're ambassadors, which means now we're here on a mission. And our mission is to communicate the gospel. Now, that's an offensive message because what it is, it's saying that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And so because of that, there will always be strife between believers and the world. And so we see where the persecution will come from. The origin of persecution, verse 12, it talks about they will lay their hands upon you. That could very well refer to the religious leaders. But, as we see in the book of Acts, it not only refers to religious leaders, but it also refers to uh, kings and generals. And it refers to Gentiles. Paul's arrested and brought before many uh, Gentile people. What's the reason for the persecution? Twice we read, for my namesake. Verse 12 and verse 17. It's because of the gospel. It's because of the gospel. When you have believed in Jesus Christ, he's brought you into his family, that you would enjoy life with him forever. But life on this world is difficult because we now are given a mission to share the gospel with others. We're now given a mission to tell people that they are under the judgment of God. And what we do is when we look at the book of Acts, which is the, the kind of the birth of the church, we see the church joyfully loving God and worshiping God, but also enduring persecution as they are spread throughout the world. Now there's a blessing to persecution also. Now that might sound like an oxymoron. Ready? Persecution, blessing, does that go together? But remember this, how does the gospel come to us? 
comes because of the cross, right? There is no salvation of sins. There's no forgiveness at all without the cross. So for, for the people who say, look, I don't want persecution. I don't like anything like that. That just can't be a good thing. Well, that's the only way the gospel comes to us is through the suffering of Jesus Christ. And now, we who have been given the Spirit are now called to live like Jesus. So as Jesus was rejected, now we will be rejected. But the good news is, there's a purpose. There was a purpose behind Jesus' persecution, right? The salvation of the world, of all those who believe in Him. And now, there's a purpose behind ours. Look at verse 13. This will be your opportunity to witness. Yay! Right? But, but notice what he's saying. is like, look, when you're being persecuted, that doesn't mean my absence. It means my presence is with you that you would share the gospel. Now, we see this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul, he's been arrested, and he says, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. In prison, he has now shared the gospel with the imperial guard, people he would have had very little access to. The soldier who's chained to him gets to listen to the gospel every single day. We read in Acts that Paul is brought forth before governors and kings to do what? To share the gospel. He's, his, his arrest, his persecution has given him a platform to speak to people that we would not normally speak to. And so what we see here is that there is a sovereign, divine wisdom plan that takes place in persecution, meaning it is not a waste but when believers are arrested, God is using that as the divine means of spreading the gospel. Go back to chapter 7 in Acts. What happens? Stephen is persecuted. He's martyred. What happens next in chapter 8? The gospel spreads to the nations. All of a sudden, the gospel leaves Jerusalem and goes to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Persecution, while not our chosen hobby, is often the means that God uses to advance the gospel. And notice, there's provision. Verse 14, Jesus says, settle it, settle it therefore in your minds. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Meaning, look, when you're arrested and you know tomorrow you're going to be before uh, the judge, don't stay up all night worrying about what you're going to say. Why? Why, Paul? Why, Jesus? Why do I not need to be arrested? Or why do I not need to be terrified about this? Verse 15, Jesus says, I will give you a mouth of wisdom. I'll give them a mouth in wisdom which earlier in, uh, in Luke, we read that means he's going to give them the Holy Spirit. So he says, look, I'm going to use persecution as a means of advancing the gospel. I'm going to get, the Spirit will be in you, and he will speak through you. And Acts 7 is an amazing example of this. Stephen, one of the first century deacons, he preaches a gospel that was one of the most eloquent sermons that we have. It's all by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 18 Read, not a hair of your head will perish. There's grace in this. Now, now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we won't die, because just in verse 16, we read, surely some, not all, some will be put to death. So what does it mean? Are we going to be put to death, or will our hair not perish? Well, both. We might be put to death, but our hairs will not perish. So what is Jesus communicating? It means that while our life may be taken, there is nothing that separates us from the love of God, from his power, from his provision, from his grace. That's the end of Romans 8, remember? That there is no, there's no um, tribulation, there's no pain, there's no trials, there's no angels, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And so what he has here, he's, he's giving all of this grace, saying, okay, you've now, you've believed in me, you know judgment is coming, and I'm saying persecution is going to now be very much what characterizes your life. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound good. Well, true, but, but let us understand that there's a judgment that will last for all of eternity for those who reject Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus might be persecuted for a temporal period of time for the purpose of other people coming to know Jesus, and then they will spend all of eternity in perfect joy and perfect blessing in the presence of God. So this whole passage is framed in grace of all that God provides, which leads us then to the response. What's the response? Verse 19, endure. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. 
We can stand firm. I know judgment is coming, but I don't have to be worried about that because the Spirit is in me. I can be bold now, knowing that it might cost me my life, but I know that nothing separates me from the grace of God. So that's the first thing that he says. The second one, we switch over to verses 34 to 36. We're to stay alert, waiting, and anticipating Jesus' return. We're told two things. Number one, we're told to watch ourselves. Verse 34, but watch yourselves, meaning what we must be on guard. What do we need to be on guard about? Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, that's overindulgence, drunkenness, another form of overindulgence, the cares of this life. So what I think he's saying is that there's going to be a time that's going to to lapse between my first coming and second coming. And, And there are a lot of good things in this earth. There are a lot of good things. And it's easy to be distracted by good things. Like back in verse 6, the temple, it's a good thing. Look how beautiful, it's a good thing. But good things become bad things when they take us away from Jesus. And when we begin to focus on them, the good thing is no longer a good thing. And we need to be careful. So that's what he's warning us about. He's saying we need to watch ourselves. Second, he says stay awake. I think these are like two sides of a coin. We need to watch ourselves. Make sure that we enjoy life, enjoy it for what it is, but not be distracted by life and we need to stay awake that's what we see in verse 36 but stay awake at all times means that we're to live in a way that honors God knowing that he will appear at any moment I remember when I was younger my dad would go on business trips and like we know when he's going to come home and so my kids will probably do something like this today when Steph comes home Um, we keep looking out the window you know like you know he's coming like is he here yet no he's not here yet is he here yet? You know, go check the, go, go open the garage door or the front door. Go out there. Is he there yet? No. And, and while we might be doing other things, our ears are, are alert, you know? Was that a car door I heard? Let me go check. Was that garage door opening? Let me go check. You know, so we're doing other things, but we're alert. We're very aware there's a coming that's going to take place. And that is affecting everything that I do. Do I go to my friend's house at that moment? No, because I want to be there when my dad gets home because we're anticipating this. So we're living in a way that's anticipating my father's return. And so we are to live in a way that anticipates Jesus's return. I think it's easy to say that we'll die for Jesus when it's not imminent. And no one's holding a gun to our head right now. So it's easy to say, yeah, of course, I would die for Jesus. I love the gospel. I have zeal for Jesus. But that same zeal is not only to be used at the end of life, but all throughout life that we now live for Jesus at every moment of the day. So does the same zeal says, yes, of course I would die for the gospel. I would lay down my life. But that's to happen every single day as we take up our cross and follow Jesus that we might live in a way that would bring him glory, bring him honor, and share the gospel with others. And notice how we stay awake. Is it through being involved in, you know, six Bible studies, four table groups, and leading four people to Jesus every day? That's the way we stay awake. I mean, we got to be like super Christians. What does he say? Look at verse 36. What does it say? But stay awake at all times what? What does it say? Like three people know it. That's cool. What does it say? Stay, stay awake at all times. Praying. Prayer. Think about that prayer. Of all the things he could have said at this moment, pray. Pray. Because what is prayer? Prayer is faith in action. Prayer is saying, God, I need you. Prayer is saying, I see the visible things in this world, but I'm choosing to trust in you more than the visible things. Prayer is depending upon God's grace. And what do we need to pray for? I wrote down at least five things. We should pray for the return of Jesus. If we're going to stay alert, we we must keep that in our mind. We need to pray. God, I want you to return. I want you to return that we would be with you, that sin would come to an end. Pray for others to believe in Jesus. If we know that there's judgment, if we know there's a return, let us pray for those who are around us. Number three, pray that we love Jesus more than our family, friends, and reputation. It's easy to say I do, but do I? I love Jesus more than my family, 
my friends, my work, my reputation. And we pray that we would do that. Pray that we would understand the calling that God has placed upon us, the transformation that he's given us, the adoption that he has given us. Number four, we need to pray we would stand firm and endure in the midst of persecution. We've got to prepare. The soldier doesn't go into battle on day one. He goes to boot camp, and hopefully he gets a lot of training. So then he's ready. The way we, the way we prepare for persecution is not waiting for persecution, but it's through prayer. It's through the reading of the Bible. It is by being involved in table groups and with the church, strengthening one another, praying with one another. Number five, pray we would not be distracted by good things. I love good things. Do you love good things? I can be distracted by good things. I can be distracted by cares on this world, by NFL football now, whether you like football or you're boycotting football because they're not coming out. You know, like, but we can become enamored with it. We can become immersed in it. We can become, we can take good things like our kids, like Bible studies, like our families, like our work, which are all good things, but we can become so focused on them that we begin to forget about the gospel and our true purpose here. Let us not pray that we become, let us pray that we would not be distracted by good things. I just want to close by looking at verses 29 and 33. So Jesus gives an example of a fig tree. And the, the example's pretty easy. Like, I, like, this is one of those clear things. We don't need a rocket science degree to figure this out. If you see a leaf on a tree, summer's coming. I got it. We know the opposite of that now. If leaves are falling, we're going into fall and we won't see the sun for six months, right? Like, that's where we're at. Like, there's sun right now, and I know all of us are just like, can it last a little longer? It's not. It's going. We know it's going. The leaves are falling. We know. We know six months of joy is coming. We know. We know exactly what this means. Saying that we're to understand the times. Jerusalem was destroyed. We see the certainty of that. And the certainty of that destruction is to lead us to the certainty of understanding Jesus will return. This is not good news for some, only if we choose to believe it or not. I mean, Jesus is not like a prophet, like David Mead. Remember him? September 23rd, 2017, the world will end. It's October 21st. Did it, he was wrong. Oh, did he change it? He changed it again. Oh, man. So you'll notice a couple things about all the people who make claims. They're wrong, all of them. They, they change them all the time, too. And they always act like it's tomorrow. Have you noticed that? It's always urgent. It's always very, very soon the end of the world is coming over. David is not, or Jesus is not like David Mead. Rather, look at, look at verse um, 32, or 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is now saying, like, I've just told you the future. Jerusalem will be destroyed, and soon after that will be my coming. These are certain fixed things. The judgment is there. Do we believe that? Do we understand that? Do we understand that as believers, we have been now called to live as ambassadors on this earth? that we would proclaim the gospel for the very glory of God because there is nothing sweeter than knowing that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Do we understand that? Do we know that? Do we love that? Because if we do, then we, what we do is we take this teaching and we're not worried about timing. We're worried about faithfulness in the time that we're in. We're understanding that at every moment God has given us grace, that we would stand firm, that we would endure, that we would watch, and that we would stay awake anticipating his return. This is not a relative truth or a cultural truth that is good for only certain people. There are severe consequences for those who reject the teaching in this passage. Just as anyone who rejected Jesus' teaching when he said, leave the city, if they ran to the city, they died. It was death for anyone who was in that city. And there will be death, an eternal death, for anyone that ignores this teaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
And so we who know this have now been given the privilege, the amazing mission of going and sharing the gospel that more and more people would come because we know God's words are certain. We know that this earth will pass away, but his words will stand forever. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna go ahead and have the team close us. And as we pray, I want to encourage you um, just spend time in yourself just praying. Just praying wherever you're at, confessing whatever the Spirit is leading you. Maybe it's that we would better understand the gospel and what Jesus saved us from and understand how he has called us to live. Maybe that's your prayer right now. God, God I want to better understand what it means to live as a disciple right now. How do I stay awake? How do I be alert? How do I guard myself? Um, maybe you have sins to repent from. So I encourage you, let's take a few moments and spend, and then I'll close in prayer, and the team will come up. For your grace. Yeah, we just thank you that you and your sovereignty have ordained all things, the beginning all the way to the end. God, that you hold the heavens in the palm of your hand. That there is never anything new to you. And God, we, we thank you for the teaching that you have given us in Luke 21. It is big, it is vast, it is good and complicated and hard. God, help us not to be distracted by the unclear things. But God, help us to be focused on what is clear, that God, you are sovereign. And you give all grace to your disciples right now that we would live in a way that honors you, that we would live in a way that advances the gospel. And God, I just pray that we as a church, we, we would know this truth. We would know that every day we wake up that your grace is there with us. And that God, if there is a day that any one of us is arrested or all of us is arrested, we do not need to be terrified. We do not need to fret. For your spirit is in us that you would give us the words that we can boldly stand, not in our strength, but in your strength. May we know that. Help us not to be terrified by world events, but may we stand firm that we might point people, one another, to the truth that is in your word, that this world will eventually perish, but there is a world that is coming. And for all who have believed in you, we will reign with you forever. And that is our hope. That is our dream. That is what we look forward to because that is what your son Jesus has come and secured for us at the cross. And so God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your text. God, grow us in our wisdom. Grow us in our understanding. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.